Hi, I'm Amy, and tonight I'll be doing the Bible reading. Um, the Bible reading is from Psalm 99, which can be pay- found on page 593. Um, the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great name, great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Amos 1, verses 3 to chapter 2, verses 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Benedict. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to curse, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against the people of Ekron until the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood, I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually, and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire upon the walls of Taman that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses. Amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day, her king will go into exile, he and his officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins 
of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon the walls of Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her king and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. Evening, folks. I'm the other Roger. Um, We're looking at that chapter that's just been read uh, to us, Amos chapter 1 into 2 verse 3 tonight. Uh, Here's how it's going to work. I'm just going to give you a brief uh, intro, and then we're going to talk to each other for a minute, and then we'll crack into the passage. So let me just uh, say, if you're a visitor tonight, what we're doing is working through a book of the Bible. It's called Amos. It's in the Old Testament, that part of the Bible written before Jesus. Uh, And whenever we read the Old Testament, we've got to do a couple of things. Firstly... Work out what it meant to the people at the time. If you were living in this time, five, six, seven hundred years before Jesus was born, what would you be hearing? And then as Christians who, uh, in the big kind of arc of the the Bible's story, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to new creation, that kind of centres and hangs around Jesus, how does Amos fit into God's plan to bring all things together under Jesus as a king. Uh, So firstly, uh, we looked last week at the fact that this is God speaking, and you would have got that from uh, Amos chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The Lord roars, the Lord thunders, he speaks in this authoritative voice. Uh, And in this chapter particularly, it's it's a little bit like uh, the map that you're about to see. Uh, Amos kind of points around to all the nations, Edom, Moab, Ammon, all around the place, all around Judah and Israel and tells them off for the way that they are living. He says to them, judgment is coming because of how you are living. And if you were a person who lived in Judah or Israel, you'd be going, yeah, the nations around us have got it coming. Uh, And it's a little bit like that, except if you've got your Bibles open, and I encourage you to do this, turn with me to page 906. Page 906. Just after our reading for today ends, instead of pointing the fingers at all the nations around, you get chapter 2, verse 4. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah. And then down in verse 6, for three sins of Israel. The finger starts pointing out to all the nations around, this is what's coming to you, this is what's coming to you, and then finally... This is what's coming to you, God's own people. But tonight, we're talking about the threat of judgment. And so for the next couple of minutes, I just want you to talk with the people around you or the person next to you about this question. Are you ready? When is judgment a good thing? When is judgment a good thing? Now, as you're doing this, uh, Laura and Christy are going to hand out some bits of paper that will help for the rest of the sermon. But you've got about one minute just to talk with the people around you, and then I'm going to hear a couple of answers. Go. When is judgment a good thing? Okay, uh, throw a hand up and sing out your answer. Yeah, oh, you don't have to sing it. Um, throw, us, throw a hand up and tell us, when is judgment good? Come on. When there is wrong and a desperate need for 
when there's wrong and a desperate need for right? See, that's a very broad answer. Correct? I want specifics. Yep, Ken. Judgment is good when it's informed judgment. Yes, nothing worse than a, a wrong judgment. Yep. Judgment is good when it's in my favour. I like it. When is judgment good when it's in my favour? More, please. When is judgment good? Yep. Judgment is good in a court of law. Yep, that ties up a few of those together, doesn't it? Yep, thanks. Yep. Yes, when the guy who's been tailgating you and being a loser on the road gets pulled over by the undercover cop in front of you. Yes, justice is good when the people annoying you get smashed. Yes, judge, that's a good judgment. What else? Yep. Say again. Judgment is good when you're doing something wrong. Tell us more, Davey. Yeah, nice. Good call. Anyone else? Tell you a couple we had at Urco this morning. Uh, the video ref. The video ref. When judgment is good. Yeah, when... The, well, in the end, truth will out. Um, yeah, the ref hasn't seen it. It's a good judgment, depending on who you're barracking for, but the truth comes out. Um, and another one we had was uh, when parents say to their kids, don't do that, it's bad. Because even though the kids like doing what they're doing, it may not be good for them in the long run. They're, they're two that we, you were thinking, but we're too afraid to put your hand up for, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you've received uh, a piece of paper, hopefully, and that is the exact words uh, of Amos 1, 3 through 2, 3, but because I'm a bit of a nerd, I put it into a table. So there's nothing missing. I haven't added in everything, and it goes from left to right across the rows. So if you were reading it out, you just read across the rows. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, even four. But what it does for us is pick up some of the repeated themes. And so I'm actually going to preach the columns. I'm going to preach the columns, starting with column two. Starting with column two. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. For three sins of Gaza... Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, you get the point. Three things to say. Firstly, what's with the three or the four? For three sins or for four, what is Amos going on about? Here's my theory. These are repeated infringements. He doesn't say for one sin or for two. It's not the first time. It's not even the second time. This is ongoing, repeated sin. Which brings us to the second point, what is sin? Well, uh, we'll get to that in column three because that gives us the reason. See how all the column threes start with because? Whatever is bringing God's wrath, it can be summed up in this word sin. It's one of those churchy words, and so we need to be careful when we use it in church that we don't assume that everyone knows what it means. Luckily in Amos, Amos goes into quite some detail as to what these people have done to incur, the third point, my wrath. Notice it's not just wrath. I will not turn back the wrath. 
I will not turn back a wrath. I will not turn back some wrath. No, it says in every single line, I will not turn back my wrath. Whatever this wrath, and it's just a word that means right, justified anger. Wrath is right, justified anger. Like when someone cuts in front of you, you've got this right, justified, how dare you? But it can be more serious than that. When you have been wronged, you have right anger. So when Jesus gets angry at the guys who are making his father's house, the temple, into a little small business centre and focusing on the money rather than on God, his wrath, his right anger, tips up the tables and tosses them out of the temple. Right, justified anger. Whatever it is, my wrath, Amos says, on behalf of God, is what all the prophets do, it's personal. The wrath of God, and this is a big point tonight, the wrath of God is personal. Coming from the personal God to individuals and groups of people. Notice that when God brings this message to the surrounding nations of Judah and Israel, God's people, the Judah and Israel, the the others, the Gentiles, the nations around, the message is, I will not turn back my wrath. Now, you only say that if there might be an expectation that you will. I'm not going to give you an ice cream. And you're like, oh, there was a chance of ice cream? Oh, what did I do? I will not turn back my wrath is a reminder that the God who speaks is a God whose nature is always to have mercy. God's character as he's revealed it, the God who says, I am who I am, you'll know me by how I act in relation to my people. When God's anger is raised up against the people who keep turning against him, Read the book of Exodus. God does this great thing for his people and they repeatedly, repeatedly ignore him on how to live well in response to his gracious salvation. When God's anger is rightly raised against his people, quite often someone will go to God and say, but Lord, you promised that you'd have mercy. And God goes, yes, I did. And I relent, I turn back from my wrath. The reminder that wrath is both personal and able to be turned back, reminds us of the character of God himself. This is one of the things that happens when you read God's word, the Bible. You're reminded about who God is. God is personal. And God is a God who brings just anger and is willing to turn back his wrath. But in this case, God says, I will not turn back my wrath. Column three. Why will God not turn back his wrath? Because... Row two, because, 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 because. And you know, when you read the Bible, you're always looking for the linking words. Therefore, because, since, all of those, they tell you why something is happening. And in column three, why is the wrath of God not going to be turned back? Just cast your eyes down that column and try and work out what they have in common. Sledges with iron teeth. It's not the kind of sledges your mum could bowl faster than that. It's a weapon. It's a weapon. What does all of column three have in common? Threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Took captive whole communities, sold them to Eman. Sold whole communities of captives, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. 
pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, anger raging continually, fury flamed unchecked, ripped open pregnant women in order to extend borders, burned to lime the bones of Edom's king. The personal wrath of the personal God is raised up because of the way people treat other people. Now, this is one of those moments when we need to remember that uh, the story of the Bible begins in Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the God of the Bible made and sustains everything and everyone? Because if you don't believe that God's the creator, if you don't believe that God has owner's rights over each thing and each person that exists in the past and now, then crimes against people like this are really none of God's business. God might care about the way that we relate to him. But this is a reminder that the wrath of God is not just riled up because of the way that we or other people relate to him, but because of the way his creatures relate to one another. If you're created, you are a creature. I don't know if you think this way. One of my favourite beers is little creatures. It's a good reminder that I am created. I'm not the creator. I'm not in charge. I am created and sustained by this God. The thing that's in common all the way down that column is that people have done terrible things to one another. There's not a mention of God at all. Ripping open pregnant women to extend your borders. Pursuing your brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. The people to whom Amos spoke had heard the stories of these nations and the way they'd treated one another and those in their areas. And for a moment, before the words of judgment fall to them, you can hear them going, yeah, justice. Justice to those terrible situations. This is a reminder to us that God cares deeply about all whom he has made. God cares about every person that he's made, even those that aren't recognising him as God. If you're a Christian sitting here tonight, we must remember that we're not God's favourites because we're better. The story of the Bible is clear. God makes it evidently clear that he doesn't choose people because they're better. God loves all that he has made. And this is a chance for us to pause and go, well, how how are we going to live in light of this? If God loves every single person that you are going to meet this week, every person that you will see with your eyes, even if you don't relate to them, it's a reminder that God is much more concerned with people than with thinking or doctrine or church services than we sometimes remember. God cares for people because he made people. 
there have been Christians in the past who, in response to this, have sought to solve all the problems of humanity dealing with itself in the now. Helping bring peace to the world is a noble and good and right thing. For Christians, it's always flavoured with the knowledge that it will never happen permanently until the King Jesus brings the peace that can only come when there is peace with God, when proper justice is established. So hear me saying both things. There will be a day when evil is gone and people relate to each other perfectly, and it is worth pursuing it now, even though you'll never fix it, because God cares deeply about every person that he's made. So we're at column four. What happens when God's wrath is raised up because of the way people have treated one another? The common thread all the way down column four is fire. I don't know what you think of when you think of the biblical picture of fire. I think there's two things that should spring to mind. Firstly, God's presence. No, not with a TS, like God giving you gifts, but God being present. Whenever God reveals himself to people, something happens. Sometimes it's wind, sometimes it's a voice. Often it's fire. Can you think of any times? In the Exodus, God leads his people by day in a cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. When God appears on the day of Pentecost in the New Testament, seven weeks after Jesus has risen from the dead, when the Holy Spirit comes down, it's not a dove, it's not a voice from heaven, it's tongues of fire sitting on top of people's heads. Kooky. But for those people who knew their scriptures, who knew the Old Testament, it was a clear sign of God's presence. Because the Holy Spirit is in and among God's people. So fire is a sign of the presence of God. And sometimes, if you think of the burning bush, when Moses stood in front of the burning bush, Exodus 6, it's special fire that doesn't consume things. You know, the amazing thing about the burning bush, when Moses kind of looks at it and goes, hang on a sec, that bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. When I was a kid, one of my favourite things was playing with the incinerator. Ah, oh, back in the days. You know, you used to be able to rake up all the leaves from your backyard and instead of putting them in a stupid green bin, you could put them in a fire. <laughs> awesome! And the idea is that the fire consumes the leaves. That's what fire does. Sometimes, when God appears, his fire doesn't consume things as a special sign that it's from him. But in this case... It is a fire, as you look down all the way of column five, it is a fire that consumes. Column five, consume the fortresses, consume the fortresses, consume the fortresses, consume the fortresses, consume her fortresses, that will consume the fortresses. Six times, fire consuming fortresses. Now, I haven't been to your house necessarily, I'm guessing not much of a fortress. What is this talking about? Why is it so significant that every time wrath from God is present on these people, the fire destroys these people's fortresses? Well, partly it's just how life worked. When you had a city, the best way to keep it safe was to build a dirty big wall around it. And if you wanted to get into the city, you had to do something to the wall. You know, insert medieval story about oil, battering rams, big wooden horses here. I know that wasn't the middle, whatever. 
consuming the fortresses, it's both literal to the people of Amos and it's metaphorical. If you want to take down someone, you have to take down their defences. When God comes in wrath, in his personal anger, to deal with the people who have not treated one another as he expects, the consuming fire breaks down every conceivable defence. As we long for a day when God will set right all the evil in the world, there is no defence that stands before the consuming fire of God's right wrath. I was in a taxi last night uh, with a guy called Rumden, whose parents are Muslims. He's not. He said he believes in, well, in his words, the big fella upstairs. He believes that there's one God, but he's not sure whether the Jews or the Christians or the Muslims have really n- nailed it. He thinks that we should each be ready to learn of the good from each of those ways and to just be tolerant of people who think differently. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? I told him I was a minister. He said, well, that's great. I'm not sure. You know, I haven't really worked out exactly what I think, but it's good that we can be tolerant of each other's positions. You probably know people who think pretty similarly. They respect you as a person, at least to your face, uh, because you're a Christian. That's great for you. But they, they will suggest, they will loudly or quietly insist that whatever they do is right for them. This is one of the things where judgment brings a little bit of a wedge into conversations like this. The God of the Bible comes to bring justice. It's justice that, like Davy suggested, is good for us when we're stuck in a cycle of bad living. It's justice that we cry out, cry out for when we see things that are messed up and should be set right. It's justice for the little things, bad driving, and the deep, deep wrongs that have been done to and by large groups of people. When God comes in just to bring justice, there is no fortress that can stand. There's no person who can say, well, I think the right thing to do is, is this. I'm, I'm better than this guy. I'm, I'm not a murderer. I've tried to be kind to people. I, I even came to church. Surely, God, you should look on, fa- look on that with favour. The fire of God's wrath comes because a personal God has been ignored by the people he's created. And I just want to duck out of Amos into Romans for a minute. So if you've got a Bible, flick, flick with me. It's worth keeping a finger in Amos because we're going to be right back there. Uh, if you're not a flicker, that's okay. You can listen. I'm just going to read to us briefly from Romans chapter 3. It's on page 1114, 1114. By the way, the answer to kind of every Christian question is found in the book of Romans. And uh, it's a kind of essay on what the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus really is. And it starts, if you want to talk about forgiveness, you have to be forgiven for something. That thing for which you're forgiven is sin. And the point of Romans 1 to 3, or at least 3, 1 to 20, is that no matter who you are, no matter what you think about God, you're a sinner. Now, it's not a popular point of view, uh, but... 
the kind of the climax of it starts in chapter 3, verse 9, talking about Jews. What are we to conclude? Are we Jews any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and everyone else, Gentiles, alike are under sin. And then there's this great collection of quotes for the nerds. It's called a katina. All these quotes from the Old Testament saying, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. There is, verse 18, no fear of God before their eyes. The way that Romans sums up sin is really, really personal. If you want to go back to Romans 1, verse 25, hear this. People exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. As I go back into Amos and you look at these fortresses, these kings, the people that God is bringing wrath upon, on one hand it seems unfair, doesn't it? These aren't the people of God. They don't have Genesis and Exodus and the story of God's goodness and faithfulness to his promises to always have mercy on those who call on him. Isn't it unfair of God to bring judgment? No. God says that when he created us, there's something in our brains that just knows what's right and what's wrong. Part of who we are is if we keep doing the wrong thing in the way that we treat people, treat one another, we just begin to think it's okay. Does that that fit with you, with your experience? I'm like that. I do something I know it's wrong the first time. I think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Do it again. It's not quite as bad as the last time I did it. This is what sin is like. It's self-deceiving. And the effects seem to be less and less on my conscience. My conscience kind of gets dulled or seared. It's not just a Christian experience. Uh, The first couple of chapters of Romans are pretty clear about this. No matter who you are, no matter where you grew up and what your parents believed about God, there's stuff that you just know. You know that there's a God. You know that he's powerful. You don't know all the details. You don't know about Jesus or the Trinity or anything like that. But you just know that there's a God. And I think what Amos shows us here is that you should know how to treat other people. Ripping open pregnant women to extend the borders of your country, it's just not right. It's not a fully formed ethical framework, but there's some stuff that's just not right. Pursuing your brother with a sword and showing no compassion, just not right. And because of that, God is coming to set right people who have walked away from what they know of him. It's not just fortresses that God burns down, But notice that God goes right to the heart of the people. Column 6. God takes down the representatives. Now, we're not so big on representatives because we like to be individuals. But back in the day, the king was the figurehead. Ra, the king. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Australians thought this way as well. Uh, in, In the staff room of the school I used to teach in was a, a big, beautiful wooden board Uh, with the names of all those boys from that school who'd served and died in the Boer and First World World Wars. And the Latin phrase that sat at the top was for king and country. For king and country. We would do things for the king, even though he was on the other side of the world, telling us to go and fight in stupid wars. 
Because that's what you do when you follow the king. The picture the Bible paints of kingship is that God is his people's king, and rightly so. We're his. He sustains us and feeds us. We live at his pleasure. But those who stand in opposition to God have a king as well. The Bible makes clear that Satan, the prince of this world, leads people away from God. And this is a picture of what is happening on the cross, don't you think? That as God describes the destruction of the kings in column 6, the king in the Valley of Avon, the king of Ashdod, the king going into exile, Moab into great tumult. This is, this is looking forward, as the Old Testament does, to a time when all those kings who stand in opposition to Jesus mock the cross. Are you really a king? If you're a king, get down and save yourself. See, the resurrection and ascension back to heaven of Jesus demonstrates clearly, historically, that there is only one king who has the power over death. Satan has the power of death in that the worst thing he can do to you is kill you, kill your body. But as Jesus said, shouldn't we fear the one who has power not just over the body but over the soul as well? When God comes in wrath, he takes down the kings that stand in opposition to him. It's what real kings do. There can only be one king. You can only have one king. Ultimately, whatever you follow as your king will either stand the test of God's judgment or not. This is a call for God's people to live wholeheartedly for him because everything that's not a king will be shown for what it is. But it's not just the kings who go into exile, column 7, it's the people. The people who follow these kings go with him. Now, not all of the lines have the people in it, but I think the point is clear from uh, 1, 2 and 6. Whoever follows the king has the same status as the king. Now, we get to the end and you think, Rod, you didn't start with column 1. That's true because there's something about starting and beginning with the same thing that tells you something about what's on the inside. All of these words from the Lord... To all these nations that surround Israel and Judah, that surround God's people, start with a very simple and easily glossed over message. Column 1 and column 8. This is what the Lord says. It's kind of where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Do you believe God's word? What will it mean for me and for you to take this word as the very word of God? Now, I'm standing here talking, clearly not God. But this is what the Lord says. Justice will be served for those who fail to treat God's creatures as they deserve. Kings who stand in opposition to the great one king will meet their fate. Fire will consume God's enemies, says the Lord. See, as we try to read Amos sensitively in its own historical context and in light of the narrative arc of the Bible, we cannot but see the wrath of God that's poured out on Jesus. God doesn't stand at a distance and pour his wrath on his enemies, 
but so loves the world that he gives his only son, that whoever believes in this sacrifice of that son to absorb the wrath of God can live. Not just live, but live the life to which God calls all people to live in right response to the true king. So my challenge for us this week is, what will you hear and what will you see? See, these are the words of God. This is what the Lord says. And I think when we hear God's word, we recognise that he's the king and we see the world in the way God intends it. How will you see the people around you this week? I think sometimes we lack a desperation We lack a desperation for those who stand facing the fiery judgment of God to see them one for Jesus. I'm guilty of this. I'm going to pray for us now that we would would see things as God's word calls us to see them. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us and you speak to us uh, for our benefit. And we thank you for the privilege it is to know you and to have been spoken to by you. Uh, Lord, uh, passages like this make us uncomfortable. Uh, We know that we're far from perfect and uh, it makes us awkward to, to think of the people we know and love facing the same judgment that your son, the Lord Jesus, faced as he was nailed to the cross. Uh, Lord, help us to trust Jesus' work. Help us to trust his life and death and resurrection as the way that you show mercy to everyone. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep our faith in Jesus, that we might see him clearly as the king you've established him to be. And, Father, we pray that our eyes this week would be drawn to him and to all that you have made. Give us a heart, Lord, for people who are your creatures, uh, that we all might live in the way that is good and right under you, our proper king. Amen.